Good morning, gents. Merry Christmas to you. Sure is good to have youngsters like Shep in here, you know. Good to have these young men we can train for decades to come. Shep, you've got to be our oldest amen member. Anybody older than 96? You, you take the prize, my friend. It's good to have you here. Uh, all the way down to you, the youngest of you. We're glad all of you are here. And it's been a good semester together studying 1 Corinthians. It's a very important book in our Bible. We're going to take up 2 Corinthians next semester. I encourage you to bring your friends, you know, some others who might want to pick up after Christmas. It'll be a good time to do it because we'll be starting with 1 Corinthians 13, very important chapter in 1 Corinthians 1. We'll soon, uh, you know, within a month or so, finish up chapter, or rather, 1 Corinthians, and we'll go into 2 Corinthians, which is probably Paul's most passionate letter in some ways. And uh, we learned so much about Christ and about the gospel and the Christian life in 2 Corinthians as well. So be thinking about who you, who you want to invite to amen uh, next semester. And, and you might be thinking about also inviting them into your small group. Uh, your small groups might talk about how you might include some of your uh, uh, guy friends who, uh, who don't have a Bible study to attend on a Thursday morning. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. And you know that beginning with chapter 7... Paul begins to address issues that they asked him about in a letter. For example, in, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then from there to the end of the letter, he's largely addressing questions that they wrote about. We know in the first six chapters, he was largely addressing questions that came from a report from Chloe's household. There were a couple of instances where he had information from Chloe that he was addressing in these later chapters, but primarily it's in response to this letter. And you'll see the same language at the beginning of chapter 12 where he says, now concerning, once again using the same language. Uh, you know, it's, so it's like when you get a letter with several questions in it and you just answer back you know, in the email, you just answer right under their questions, give it their answers. That's what Paul's trying to do, is take their letter with your, their questions and answer it. Now, uh, we've, been, we've noticed that a large portion of Paul's concern has to do with their worship because they're asking questions about worship and whether they should go to temple feasts or not. And he says, no, you shouldn't because that involves false worship. And then uh, they, they discuss how they should dress when they go to worship. And he's saying, ladies, don't, don't throw off your head coverings. It's not as though you've removed all forms of structure in society and all uh, cultural norms. You don't want to look weird as Christian people. So maintain the authority on your head that you had before you were a Christian and wear that in, into worship. And then, of course, we've seen how he shows that there must, social justice must, must be exercised at all times, and in particular at the Lord's Supper, where the wealthy were coming early and eating and drinking, and so much so that they were drunk by the time the poor people got there uh, later in the evening after their jobs. And he said, that, that just can't be, because uh, we must discern the body of Christ, the church, and have a care for her, because that's what the Lord's Supper is all about, Christ caring for us. Uh, then we come to chapter 12, and if you know 1 Corinthians, you know that 12 through 14 kind of hangs together as a total unit. He's talking about how they exercise their spiritual gifts in worship. And the trick in interpreting 1 Corinthians, as we have seen, is that by reading the letter, we're trying to figure out what was the letter the Corinthians wrote Paul? Because for us to understand what Paul's saying, we need to 
have in our minds what were they asking him about? What was the problem he's addressing? So this is a very ad hoc type letter where Paul is just addressing questions. Some others are more uh, free-ranging and more uh, uh, initiated by Paul's own desire to communicate something to them. But here, it's a specific concern or a series of concerns in Corinth. Now, uh, a lot of scholars suspect, and it makes sense to me, that the driving concern in chapters 12 through 14 actually is the use of tongues in the Corinthian church. Now, he talks about a lot of gifts. He talks about love. He talks about prophecy. He talks about order in the church. But the driving concern seems to be the place of the use of tongues. That's what seems to be the big question. The reason we say that is, if you turn over and look at chapter 14 that we'll study after Christmas, in the first 25 verses, he's basically saying that everything in worship should be intelligible. That if you just have tongues and nobody understands what they mean, that's not appropriate in worship. That's those first 25 verses. We'll study that later on. The first 19 verses, he's saying that it's important for Christians who are worshiping with you, that you speak in an intelligible language. And then in verses 20-25, through 25, he shows how it's important for non-Christians. If they visit your service and they hear you gibberish, hear gibberish they, they, they can't understand the gospel. So he's saying, first of all, it must be intelligible. And so he's speaking very clearly to those tongue speakers, saying that really prophecy is more desirable than tongues. You think that tongues is the, the most super califragilistic, expialidocious type of gift, but really prophecy is much better because it's intelligible. Then you get to verses 26 through 40 in chapter 14, and he shows how everything must be ordered properly in service, in worship. So because of that, most people then back up and say this whole section, 12 through 14, is driven by those concerns. Paul's leading up to those conclusions when he's giving us chapter 12 and chapter 13. So chapter 13 is the most famous of the three chapters. The chapter on love, if you've been to weddings, and men, you know, every once in a while, they do get dragged to a wedding or two. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, actually, uh, as well. Uh, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it's often read at weddings. The, the great love chapter. But the context of that love chapter is very interesting. Because Paul's point to the tongue speakers, who thought that because they could speak in tongues, they were superior to everybody else, that no gift uh, is useful if it's not done in the way of love. That love is the most important thing. You know, he says right at the beginning of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so, uh, he's, the chapter 13 is for the whole point of saying, uh, you know, you can have all kinds of gifts, but if they're not done in love, they're useless. And, and, and your life counts for nothing if you have not love. Now backing up to chapter 12 that we're going to read now, what's the purpose of 12? 12 sort of introduces this whole thing, and Paul is showing us the very nature of spiritual gifts. Now it's helpful, of course, in applying this to the issue of speaking in tongues in the Christian community. But, gloriously for us, it's also extremely useful in looking at the use of all the spiritual gifts. What's the nature of spiritual gifting? And of course, at Christmas time, uh, when we're giving and receiving gifts, it's very uh, appropriate for us to think about what are the gifts that God gave us. And of course, we know the gift 
is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born as a babe in Bethlehem. But that's not the only gift He gave us, actually. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we couldn't be saved either because Jesus Christ gives us the record of perfection and takes the burden of our sins to Himself by imputation. But the gift of the Spirit cleanses our heart and renews us and gives us a new heart, which is necessary in order to be with the Lord. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, says the writer of Hebrews. So the Holy Spirit is a necessary gift, every bit as much as Jesus is a necessary gift. So the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity are essential in our lives in order to have eternal life. So here we're going to see in chapter 12 the nature of the gifts that God has given us by His Spirit, how they're to be used, and what the meaning of them is. So that's the full context. I'm sorry these uh, notes were too rapidly put together. I should have given you an outline of these three chapters, but I just did it orally, so now you know. Let's back up now to chapter 12, verse 1, and now we're reading sort of the introductory material. It's very important for us. Uh, I'm just so thankful because if, they hadn't, if we hadn't had this controversy over tongues, we would not have this fabulous teaching on the use of spiritual gifts that we do and that we can learn from today. Let's look at 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, 
which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. One of the big problems in uh, Corinth was that uh, a number of the folks in the church had a false view of spirituality and what it means to be a spiritual person. The adjective spiritual occurs 15 times in 1 Corinthians and only nine times in the rest of all of his writings. It's obviously a main point. And the problem with many of the Corinthians, they were sort of overbaked Pentecostals. They thought, you know, that they were spiritual beings, the matter of the body didn't matter, or the issue of the body didn't matter. So obviously in chapter 7, nobody needs sex. Uh, it's irrelevant because we're spiritual beings. When we get to chapter 15, we'll see one of the issues Paul has to deal with is they think they don't need a resurrected body in the future, that they've already been, quote, resurrected. And, and certainly we have been resurrected spiritually, but they thought that was the full conclusion of the resurrection, no body. So they were very spiritual people. And so they, they thought of themselves almost like angels, that the body wasn't important. And then they thought they were speaking in the tongues of angels. So they had an angelic language, an angelic visage, an angelic hope. And Paul says, no, you have a human hope, and we're in the body, the body is important, and we live our spiritual lives in bodies in a material world. So the title of Amen this year, Holy Man in Unholy World or in Unholy Society. That's where the spiritual life is lived. So you don't just lift yourself out and, and super-spiritualize and act as though these things, money's not important, sex is not important, relationships not important, physical health not important. Yeah, they're all important. And so the, the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones, claimed that they had everything in Christ right now. And they were not deferring anything to the not yet. And Paul says there's an already and then there's a not yet. And you are not yet in the glorified state. So you must humble yourself and live as a spiritual being in this broken world in your broken body and learn how to do that. That's the big picture of these pneumaticoi. And now it comes down to their spiritual gifts. Now I want us to notice, first of all, Paul starts off from verse, verses 1 through 3 in a way it might, might confuse some of us. It doesn't seem to be consistent necessarily with everything else he's saying. But what he's saying here is that the spiritual gifts are intentionally expressed. Now, why do I say that, intentionally expressed? Because there were such things as spiritual languages in the temples, the pagan temples. And we won't go into this this morning. We don't have time. But in, in their first century background, they had some experience of going into ecstatic states. You know, for example, uh, even in Islam, uh, there's 
the, there's a tradition within Islam where you have the whirling dervishes. You've heard of those. They just spin around and spin around until they come into such a state and then they start speaking ecstatic language and they, they take that as, as knowledge from God. So various religions have had differing ways of going into ecstatic states and looking for divine wisdom through those ecstatic states. And so these Christians were bringing some of their practices from the temple into the church and I'm not saying that, uh, that speaking in tongues was completely a pagan experience. I'm just saying there are parallels. There are counterfeits. Everything in the church is counterfeited outside the church. So if you first learned it as a counterfeit, you then bring it into the church. It's kind of like southern gentility can be really close to Christian kindness. But in some ways it's a counterfeit. Because Christian or Southern gentility is to be very outwardly gracious. Never say a bad word about anybody. Always say kind things. Be very hospitable. Then as soon as they go away, you say, you know, he's a jerk. So that kind of Southern gentility is a counterfeit of Christian love. So if you just grew up in a gentleman's home and you learned the ways of the country club, And then you come to church and you think you're just going to use the same approach. No, it's a counterfeit. Same way with these tongues. They learned tongues in the temples. They were counterfeits. They were demonic. And they bring them into the church. And it's it's a counterfeit. It's not not a spiritual thing, even though they, they were calling themselves very, very spiritual. And some of them apparently had gotten into their ecstatic state and said something like, Jesus is accursed. And the other folks were complaining. The pneumaticoi are making these wild statements and there's no accountability. Here's what Paul says. Nobody says that who's a believer. He says, um, uh, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And on the other hand, he says, these plain and simple people who don't speak in tongues, who are worshiping Jesus as Lord, You can't say Jesus is Lord authentically without the Holy Spirit. Nobody believes Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. You may say He's a historical figure, a wonderful prophet and teacher, kind of like Muhammad or Buddha or something, but you can't say He's Lord and mean it in your heart unless the Spirit has inspired that. So Paul's saying, on the one hand, these people who are claiming to be really spiritual and they're saying nutty things, that's not of the Spirit. On the other hand, these people who are very simple and not pretending to be super spiritual, but who are worshiping Jesus as Lord, that's by the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the meaning of this opening text. Spiritual gifts are intentionally expressed, which is to say to us, let's take, take an important application here. Sometimes I think uh, men who come from uh, uh, fairly uh, intellectual, Christian intellectual backgrounds are somewhat afraid of just giving themselves to the Holy Spirit. What's it going to do with me? Is it going to make me a wild man? Uh, it's going to take all my money and I don't want to give it? Uh, what's the Spirit going to do to me? And Paul is saying, though, one of the, and he says elsewhere in Galatians 5, one of the uh, fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So when the Spirit comes into your life in fullness, for the first time in your life, you have self-control. Think of all the things you're doing that don't bother you, that bother everybody else that need to be under control. 
Well, the Holy Spirit takes hold of you and gives you self-control with your tongue, with your heart, with your, with your mind, with your body. So the fullness of the Spirit, says Paul, leads to Jesus as Lord, not to crazy uh, heretical statements. So now secondly, let's look at verses 4 through 11 to get more into the body of what he's saying. And in 4 through 11, he's saying that spiritual gifts are intentionally given. There's intentionality with spiritual gifts. They're intentionally expressed by us, and we have self-control, so that when I'm full of the Spirit, I say what I mean, and I mean what I say, and I'm in control of what I do. At the same time, spiritual gifts are an expression of God's intention. Because the first uh, thing about their being intentionally given is that they're given by God, verses 4 through 6. Notice how Paul puts this in verse 4. He says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And then in verse 5, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. He's talking now about Jesus. And then in, uh, I'm sorry, that was verse 5. And then in verse 6, And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. He mentions the Spirit, He mentions the Son, and He mentions the Father. He's saying gifts are given by the Trinity. In the Bible, you can find that gifts are given by Jesus. For example, in Ephesians 4, here dominantly you see that they're given by the Spirit. and In some places it's made clear it's given by the Father. The Trinity gives us gifts. All persons of the Trinity are bestowing these gifts upon us, and they're very, very intentional. So because of this, if we are Trinitarian Christians, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we receive gifts. Every believer receives gifts, gifts of the Spirit, to be used in ministry from God. You can't be a Christian without spiritual gifts. Therefore, the word charismatic, which comes from the word charismata, which means spiritual gifts. (laughs) We're all charismatics. So if someone says, Satan, are you charismatic? I say, yes, sir. 100%. Really? You speak in tongues? If you want me to. (laughs) I'll get to that later. Uh, But but we're all charismatics. And it's kind of like, you know, different people take different words uh, and... Uh, they claim them for themselves. Uh, Pentecostals. Well, we're all sons of Pentecost, so we're all Pentecostals. We all have spiritual gifts. We're all charismatics. Uh, and uh, we're all Calvinists. I'm just teasing. Um, so, so it's very important for us to realize that don't, don't let someone take a, a, a name or an adjective and call themselves that, which then implies you're excluded. When you're not excluded, you're included. Now, we may have differing views of the use of the demonstrative gifts. We'll get to that in a minute. But when it comes to the gifts of God, we're saying we're all gifted because of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that anyone uh, who trusts in God has the Spirit of God. Now, Look at verses 7 through 10, and you see what these gifts are for. They are for the common good. Verse 7, to each is given, and it's here called the manifestation of the Spirit. How does the Spirit make His presence known? 
Well, in many ways, but in some ways through the receipt and the exercise of spiritual gifts for the common good. And then he lists a number of these gifts. And you'll notice that tongues comes toward the end of that in verse 10. Word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, the exercise of faith. Now, he doesn't just mean the faith that's given to all of us, but here, obviously, a special gift of faith. This seems to be used in healing or working of other extraordinary works of God, maybe even miracles. So there's a gift that's given to some men to exer- to, through whom God exercises tremendous works of His that's unusual and beyond what most of us experience. He even says here that some for healing, some for working of miracles, and prophecy, and some, you know, we, we debate about what this prophecy is. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophecy carried with it the inerrancy of the word of the prophet. In the New Testament, that doesn't seem to be the case because in chapter 14, we'll see that the prophets, their words were to be judged by the elders. But prophets seem to have the skill of taking God's Word and prophetically announcing it to the people. And sometimes we're given keen insights, sometimes in ways that seem to be almost miraculous, that was of the Spirit beyond ways that we might even deduce from logical reasoning. So the gift of prophecy was very important in the, in the church then, and it is now. And preaching that is really helpful for us has a prophetic edge, doesn't it? It... it drills down to our hearts beyond anything usually the preacher would have ever realized he was doing. So the Spirit takes over speech that's not canonical, it's not authoritative biblical revelation, but God is working through preachers and in the first century particularly through these prophets. And Paul values that gift greatly just as we ought to value prophetic preaching in our own day. And then, of course, those who can distinguish between spirits. That is, what's demonic and what's of the Holy Spirit. Paul, even as we saw, began in the first three verses exercising his gift of distinguishing spirits. And if you say Jesus is accursed, I know where that came from. If you say Jesus is Lord, I know where that came from. And there's a discernment, isn't there? And you know how you can sometimes just be in a certain setting and you just know something's not right. It may very well be the gift that God has given you just to distinguish among spirits and to distinguish between the Holy Spirit and His work and His pleasure and other uh, evil spirits that may be at work in certain ways. Now Paul says all of these are given and they're all manifestations of the Spirit. But notice the main point here, they're for the common good. Now there's a danger that uh, comes with talking about spiritual gifts. Because we're all interested to know, how has the Lord gifted me? And we're going to see that we all should be asking, how has the Lord gifted you? How would He have you exercise the manifestation of the Spirit in your own life? And sometimes when we take these uh, spiritual gifts tests, uh, they can lead to some unhealthy navel-gazing, some sort of uh, fascination with the self. And we're really taking these tests because I'm really wondering, do I have the gift of prophecy or the gift of administration or the gift of leadership or some other gift? What is it that I have? I want to take this test and find out. Well, we'll see in a little bit. We should be seeking to identify what gifts we have so that we can use them. 
But the problem in especially modern Western discussions about this topic is that we're normally far more interested in who we are as a person than we are in actually edifying the body. And Paul says, duh, this is the reason you have the gifts. Not to make you feel like a whole person or for your own self-development or self-satisfaction or self-fulfillment. It's not self, self, self at all. The purpose of the gifts is to serve your brothers and sisters. So I always say to people, before you take the spiritual gift test, just go do a bunch of stuff. Look, look where there are needs in your church and just go do it. And in the doing, you'll probably find out if you're duly gifted. <laughs> not, not always. But over time, as you serve, that's the best way to discover your spiritual gifts. And the best way is to offer yourself in service in a number of realms, and then what will happen is the people in the body will start recruiting you to do the tasks where you are helpful. That's the reason that you can't really academically sit back and take a test and figure out what your gifts are. They have to be exercised in community, and the community, uh, the body of Christ, the body of the Holy Spirit, Spirit's people, has to help you identify what your gifts are, and here's how you know. They're asking you to do this, and asking you to do that, and asking you to do that. Now, some of you are very gifted, and they ask you to do more than you could possibly do. So you have some decisions to make, and those decisions are made on the grounds of how can I most usefully deploy myself and spend my time? And you have to make that call, that choice based on wisdom. How can I best edify the body? But sometimes if our gifts are more narrowly focused, and some of you have one or two gifts that are just very powerful, and it sort of defines the way that you do your ministry. And people recognize that, and they recruit you into those kinds of roles of service. Some of you have five or six gifts and have to make these choices. But the point is, it's all based on the service that it renders to other people. Now, in, in years past in my life, I've seen some situations where the issue of the demonstrative gifts, speaking in tongues, healings, uh, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, these miraculous sorts of gifts have caused tremendous controversy within a church. And I've seen this divide churches. Have you? Uh, especially back in the 70s and 80s, we were seeing a lot of this. I'm thankful that it seems to be calmed down. I wonder if maybe it's calmed down because we've just kind of gone our own ways and separated. But in the renewal of a lot of churches in the 70s and 80s, there, there was uh, just a lot of friction that was being caused. And in that time, uh, I found that the dust would settle when we would simply look at 1 Corinthians 12 and draw out several principles that are fundamental. And if we would all agree on biblical principles explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians 12, peace would come. Let me give you some of those principles, and I'll just line them out for you. Number one, we are meant to be a diverse, diversely gifted people. Diversity is necessary for the body of Christ. So Paul is showing us here in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're unified in one body, but he's also making probably the, the bigger point that within our unity we're meant to be diversified. It's almost as though Paul is assuming the unity, 
but teaching the, the diversity. So we're meant to be gifted in diverse ways. And we'll see why this is so important. So first of all then, everybody doesn't have the same gifts. We're not meant to have them. That's the whole beauty of community. Secondly, the purpose of the gifts is to serve. And so, for example, with the gift of tongues, my question would always be, so how are you edifying somebody else? Well, I'm worshiping the Lord. That's great, but if nobody else knows what you're saying, how can we worship with you? All we can do is gibberish along with you. So, if you want to worship in private... You can worship in any sort of groaning you want to. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit groans beyond utterance of words. Of course. You're in your prayer closet, you're praying the Lord, and you're groaning in travail. You hardly know how to put something. You just almost groan or weep or just, you can go into tongues. And I could speak in tongues for you right now if you want me to. It's just an unintelligible language that's expressing something in me that I can't put words to. And the beauty of tongues for regular tongue speakers, I'm told, is that they can express their praise of God that is beyond words. Wonderful. Do that in private. But when you're with people, remember the exercise of your spiritual gifts is to edify your brother as well as to praise the Lord. So if I'm praising the Lord, I'm going to sing a hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, and I want you to sing it with me. So I'm going to sing a little louder. So you'll pick up your voice and sing with me. So there's a communal aspect to our praise when we do it in corporate worship. That's Paul's point. So that should then eliminate, shouldn't it, the controversy. Because when you speak in tongues, you speak at home and you speak in tongues. Great. No controversy. When we come to church, it's all intelligible. Thirdly, not only are gifts meant to be diverse and meant to be uh, edifying to the body, But, uh, where did I go? Oh, here we go. Uh, The uh, tongues must be interpreted to be useful. So do we all agree that if someone rises up and speaks in tongues, it must be interpreted? You say, well, now that's dangerous because somebody can speak in tongues and somebody can interpret. One time in a church I was in where there was controversy on this issue, a woman got up in the middle of the service and just spoke out in tongues. And there was a visiting pastor. Oh, and by the way, I have to tell you, in this church, there was, there was real controversy about the pastor. Not myself. I was not the pastor at that time. But there was... <laughs> I was later. Uh, but there was controversy about the pastor. And this woman happened to think the pastor wasn't very spiritual because he didn't speak in tongues. So in the middle of a service, an evening service, she rose up and just spoke in tongues. There was a visiting preacher, and he was wise enough to say, thank God I have the gift of interpretation. And he said, what has just been spoken among us is that God has given us a godly pastor, and we're all to follow his leadership. (laughs) That was an amazing piece of work. But the question is, who knows what the interpretation is? I've always said, okay, if we've got tongue speakers and then we've got people who say they got the gift of interpretation, then we're just going to try it out. Okay, you speak in tongues, you come up here and speak in tongues. You two interpret, okay, you both listen, okay, then uh, you speak in tongues and you sit down, then you go out, out of the room 
and then you tell us what, he, what the interpretation was. And then you sit down, and you come in from outside the room, and you tell us what the interpretation was, and we'll see if you too have the gift of interpretation. So the elders are to be in charge of the intelligible word that goes out to the people of God. They're responsible for this, whoever your elders are. And they must, they must qualify the interpreters. And I do believe that God can do things like that. He can speak to us in unintelligible language, and there can be people in the group that understand unintelligible, unknown languages and can interpret it for us. But if you can do that, then just simply show us. And it's the elder's job to be sure that it's not gibberish being interpreted by someone who had bad pizza and just tells us what they want to tell us that day. So uh, that's, that's the third principle that we use. And then the principle that no gift is intended for every saint. No gift is intended for every saint. And Paul says that. Do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Is everybody a preacher? Public preacher? No. So just like you, you wouldn't say everybody is supposed to be a pastor, you wouldn't say everybody is supposed to speak in tongues. But what were the tongue speakers 20 years ago saying? Everybody can have tongues if you just have faith. And this leads to the last thing I want to say about demonstrative gifts. Receiving tongues or receiving the gift of healing is not an issue of faith. It's an issue of God's appointment. And the most toxic, divisive thing that, is, that was being said and is still said by some is that you could speak in tongues if you only had faith. You could be healed if you only believed. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God determines these things. Now, there, it is true God does exercise His mercy through the faith of His people. So it is true. God does heal, and He does do it through people who believe. He does that. We don't know exactly when and how and where, but He does do that. But it doesn't mean that He always does it, nor does it mean that He doesn't do it because we don't have faith. You with me? So we must be very careful that we don't become anti-supernaturalists on the one hand, and say that these things couldn't possibly happen today. Oh, yes, they do. Healings happen today. I'm an eyewitness to them. And I, I think that we ought to be open that God can speak to us through any language He wants to. But we must also be wise to recognize that everything that professes to be of God is not necessarily of God. And there are ways in which, as, as John says, you must test the spirits. So we must be wise men. Paul says here, gifts are for the common good. And he lists them there in verses 7 through 10. Now there are other lists, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. None of these lists are exhaustive. So if you take one of those spiritual gifts tests with 19 gifts on it, here are the 19 gifts of the Spirit. See which ones you have. It's a little silly because neither Paul nor Peter meant to give us exhaustive lists and these are the only gifts God gives. He gives millions of gifts. And we do the best we can to describe what they are exactly. But they're of the Spirit. So sometimes they can't be completely verbally described. They're gifts from God for ministry, for building other people up. Now, some will ask, let me take a side road here. Some uh, will ask on occasion, Sandy, what's the difference between a natural ability that we're given? Because we all in this room have some natural skills What's the difference between that and spiritual gifts? 
a couple of things. If you have, for example, the gift of administration by nature, you're just a good administrator. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Great. God gave that to you through the avenue of nature. Then you become a Christian. And now you have the spiritual gift of administration. What's the difference? Here's the difference. You've been redeemed and filled with the Spirit. Now, that gift of administration is going to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. So through your gift of administration, you're seeing lives changed. Before, what you saw in the natural realm was that you're administering something. Great. That was a wonderful service to us all. But now, you're going way beyond that and you're seeing lives changed through your gift of administration. Changed into the conformity of Christ. Edified in the body of Christ. So when you have a spiritual gift, it's for the common good. And what is the common good? That we all become more like Jesus Christ. So you can see that when we have a spiritual gift, often it will simply take a natural gift and ignite it and expand it and redeem it so that it becomes specifically useful for the edification of God's people to be more like Jesus Christ. Secondly, with spiritual gifts, almost without exception, you will notice that God is doing some things through the exercise of your gift that go beyond either what you intended or what you're able to do. Even in the gift of administration, you'll find that your work has blessed or helped someone be more like Christ in a way you did not design nor intend, and it goes way beyond anything you're able to do, and you know the Holy Spirit did that. So you'll find a divine enablement. Because after all, if we're going to build up the body, you can't do that on your own. You're a human being. How are you going to make people more like Jesus Christ? You can't. The Holy Spirit does it through you. But you have a sense of this. You can see it and observe it happening around your life. You should be expecting it, and you're praying for it. So that, those are at least two ways in which spiritual gifts are distinctive. Now let's move on. In verses 12 through 26, we see that spiritual gifts are mutually inclusive. And what we mean by this is you cannot exercise these gifts by yourself. They're meant to be exercised with all the other gifts in the body. First of all, verses 12 through 14, we belong to each other. He says, um, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And the same with the Spirit. We all drink the same Spirit. We're all in the one body. Therefore, you have to remember, you're not the body. You're a member of the body. And this is why, gentlemen, in order to be Christians who are obedient to the Lord, we have to be in a body. You have to be in a church because you're not the church. You are a member. So I'm going to say, okay, I've got hey, this great index finger. Man, that thing works. I can point with it. I can write with it. I can pick my nose with it. <laughs> I can do all kinds of things with this finger. It's a great finger. Now take it off and put it on the table. What use is the finger? The finger is worth nothing. Gentlemen, it's the same way with yourself. If you think you have the gift of teaching or discipleship or preaching, or you have the gift of administration or the gift of helps or the gift of mercy, and you're going to dangle out here on the side, it's like a finger taken off the hand and put on the table. It's just not worth 
what it's meant to be worth. It's not useful. The only way the finger functions if it's on the hand, and the only way the hand functions if it's connected to the arm, and the only way the arm is functioning if it's connected to the rest of the body with a bloodstream and nerves and thought that directs it, you've got to have it in the body. That's the reason you've got to be in the church in order to exercise your spiritual gifts because they've got to be exercised in community with all the other gifts, and that's what makes your gifts useful. If you have the gift of administration, what in the heck are you administering? If you're not helping to administer so that people hear the Word of God and take the sacraments and pray together and are confronted together and exhorted together and encouraged together and love together, and if you're not administering that, what's the use of your administration? And on and on it goes with all the gifts. What's the use of, of preaching? Really, what's the use of preaching if there's no body where the Word that's been preached is lived out in community? It's, it's, not, it's not useful. If I'm evangelizing in a non-Christian crowd, part of what I'm evangelizing them to do is to come into the body. So I preach Christ, and I preach Christ's body and invite them in so they can experience Christ. That's the way gifts are meant to work. We belong to each other. Secondly, we all need each other. He says that the foot should say to the hand, I don't belong to the body. Are you crazy? Just because you say you don't belong to the body because you're jealous because you're not something else doesn't mean you don't belong to the body. I'm sorry, if you're a Christian, you're a member of the body. You can cut yourself off for a season, but you're still a member of the body. You're useless, but you're a member of the body until you get plugged back into the body. And then in C, verses 23 through 25, we must honor each other. This is a very important principle. Paul is saying, those of you speaking tongues want to display to the rest of us that you are the spiritually open-minded people who have, by your enormous faith, been given this language of angels, and you want to be sure all of us know about it. You want to be sure you stand up and display for us your spirituality. He says just the opposite is the case. We want to lift up the people who are usually ignored. People with speaking gifts get more than enough attention. Our job in the body is to show respect for those who are not put up front, whose very useful gifts are not commended by nature. They're only commended by supernature because the Spirit-filled body recognizes that we are a body and all these gifts are useful. So, Paul says, the spiritually-minded person is looking for the modest gifts and the ones that are known as the weaker gifts, and the ones that don't get as much praise in the body, and they're directing their attention in that direction. D, verse 26, we must sympathize with each other. He says, when you are filled with the Spirit, you won't be divisive, as he says in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that they may care for each other. And so you'll know, when you have a spiritual gift, here's how it's being used in sympathizing with each other and rejoicing with each other's victories. So, you do go to weddings. I told you I was going to mention that. We rejoice with each other. You do go to birthday parties. You do sing happy birthday to Shep on Thursday morning. You rejoice with each other. You do clip out the newspaper article of someone who just got promoted and you mail it to them and say, congratulations, buddy. You deserved every bit of it. You get good at that because you are serving 
the rest of the body. Your whole gifts and your whole life is directed toward using whatever God has given you to bless and build up other people. And when people are commended for doing good, they're a little bit more encouraged to to do good the next time. And you get good at that. You rejoice at others' victories instead of saying, oh, he didn't deserve that promotion, and after all, I haven't been promoted myself in five years, which is the normal human way of jealousy. And that's what drives a lot of the use of the spiritual gifts. Jealousy. Trying to put myself forward. Paul's saying it's just the opposite. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. I told some of our elders the other day, when they just show up at at the, the funeral of one of their fellow elders, and those first three pews are just filled with elders who are there to sympathize. It's one of the most beautiful sights to see men who call a time out on the day and say, I'm going to go sympathize with those who are grieving. Or those who send cards, sympathy cards, or letters when someone's hurting to a widow or to someone who's lost a parent or to someone who's gotten cancer. Just a word. It's amazing how useful that is. Now, lastly, Roman numeral four. Spiritual gifts are spiritually dangerous. Paul says, first of all, we must not seek each other's gifts. God has appointed. Here he says it again. He must say it four times in this chapter that God has appointed the gifts. And He's the one who decides who the apostles are. He's the one who decides who the prophets are. He's the one who decides who the teachers are. Who's going to work miracles? Who's going to do healings? Who's going to help? Who's going to minister? Who's going to have tongues? And then he says, does everybody do this? Does everybody have all the gifts? No, absolutely not. And you'll notice once again, he puts tongues last. The thing that you thought was super spiritual is last on my list. And then notice in verse 31, secondly, under this dangerous spirituality, we must must seek the gifts that help each other. So on the one hand, we're not navel-gazing, fascinated with self. But on the other hand, we are really desiring to have gifts from God simply because that is how we help other people. So when you sit back and say, oh, I'm not a gifted person. I don't know what my gifts are. You know what you did? You just made an excuse to yourself. Self, you don't have to do anything because you don't have a spiritual gift. And Paul says, no, I want you to do this. I want you to desire gifts and especially desire the higher gifts, the gifts that are intelligible, the gifts that are the most useful to other people. Desire those and cultivate them. I just think about it in my own teaching ministry. Some of you who teach in Sunday school or in church, you, you may have the same story. First time I taught, I, I promised God I would never do that again because I was an embarrassment to myself and to His name and to His church. And, and I had to break my vow in order to become a pastor because it was such a disaster. So I know I'm not naturally gifted. I know that whatever I do, it's because the Holy Spirit has helped me. But then, having said that, then I spend the rest of my life, once I, I realize that He's doing that in my life, now I spend the rest of my life trying to cultivate that gift, which means ending on time. You can see I'm still working on that. Speaking clearly, slowing down so people can actually understand you. I mean, there are many things to cultivate in the use of a teaching gift. And it's hard work. I mean, if you were with some of us pastors the other day, just planning what we're going to say at Christian Life Conference on the issue of sexuality. And we were hammering each other. It's hard work. 
And sometimes it can be difficult to take the criticism that comes with hard work of trying to be the best teachers we can be. And the amen teachers are the same way. We get together and talk. It's hard work. So you, you look for the gift that can, that can edify other people, and then you cultivate it. And then lastly, Paul says this. Not only desire or seek and cultivate the gifts that can be useful, but he says, I'm, go the more excellent way. Now, what's the more excellent way? Chapter 13. Love is not a gift, it's a way. It's a way of life. And the receipt of our gifts and the use of our gifts is all in the context of a genuine love and caring for other people. And he says, if you don't have that, the gifts are useless and are actually dangerous, hurtful, and harmful. But if you will receive the love of Christ, which is the only way you can ever give love, you've got to receive it first, an unconditional love from Christ. And then you give that love to other people. It is the greatest gift you can give anybody. Really, the greatest gift you can give your family, your spouse, your friends, your church, the greatest gift you can give anybody is the gift of love. Give yourself. And when you do that, then the gifts God has given you will be useful and appreciated when it's in the way of love. If you find your gifts are not being received or appreciated, first thing to ask yourself is, do I love these people? Because they can tell. And when you give them your love, oh, the gifts are beautiful. They are truly manifestations of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And may it be true in this room that we may manifest the Spirit of God by the way that we give our gifts for the glory of God and the use of other people. Let us pray. Father, thank You for these beautiful gifts that You've given us. Help us to take them and not to abuse them or distort them, but truly to refine them and hone them so that we may be ever more useful to the body of Jesus Christ. We love You and thank You for the gift of Christ and pray during these days of celebration our hearts may be truly lifted up to give ourselves away anew for Your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.